In the latest episode of PageCast, Batia Bricker, General Manager of Books and Brand at Exclusive Books, engages in a fascinating conversation with a world-renowned classicist, Professor Mary Beard, about her new book, Emperor of Rome. This book offers a unique take on the lives of Roman emperors, challenging traditional chronological storytelling. Professor Beard examines the true nature of imperial power, the actual dynamics within the Roman palace, and the lives of those surrounding the emperor, including his family, rivals, and the general populace. Her insightful narrative provides a fresh perspective on Roman history and its enduring influence on modern society. Thanks for tuning in to an intriguing discussion and enjoy this episode of PageCast. Hello, I'm Batya Bricker, the GM of Books and Brand for Exclusive Books. And today it is my pleasure to be in the proverbial room with Mary Beard, renowned classicist, professor at Cambridge, classics editor at TLS. She's made numerous TV series. This is my go-to bedtime watching, I must tell you. And her books have been published in 30 languages. Her previous book, SPQR, sold over 500,000 copies. As recently as a decade ago, it would have seemed unlikely, actually unbelievable, for this vaguely hippieish academic, with her cascade of gray hair tumbling around her shoulders, her feet shod in fabulous, albeit flat, practical shoes I've seen in all the videos, <laughs> eyes and voice a twinkle with cheeky mischief to have reached not just the heights of academic achievement, but also to become famous, loved, and admired. Mary, I wanted to ask you, did you set out to do this? Did you set out to be this icon in so many ways? Absolutely not. It's all been something of a surprise to me. And for actually much of my career, I was teaching in Cambridge, doing a bit of reviewing. I was always quite interested in the, the wider world of books, but you know, I didn't have anything to do with television or kind of mass market. I was writing extremely interesting but slightly technical <laughs> um, books and articles on Roman history. Um, and it was only really towards, well, into my kind of late 40s, early 50s, that I kind of thought I wanted to write for a wider audience. And I wanted actually to take classics to um, a, a wider audience. And and telly was a wonderful way of doing that, actually. And I, I've enjoyed doing television a lot. You look like you enjoy it. Um, either you're faking it or you really do. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a hopeless actor. So if I look like <laughs> I'm enjoying it, I really am. You know, it's, you know I, I couldn't possibly fake it. And, you know, it has been fun. And it's it's also been learning experience. I mean, I had a lot of practice in teaching university students and quite a lot of that helps you for doing a television program, actually. There's some, you know, some ways of interesting people work the same, whether you're on telly or whether you're in a lecture theatre. But there are other there are other things that you have to learn when you're talking, well, talking to an audience you can't see. And I've learned a huge amount from the the directors and the producers and the the cameramen and women and the sound men and women, you know, just helping helping me find a voice for television as well as for lecturing. The nature of the storytelling is the same. It's just how you tell the story yeah. um, and how you present it. I've enjoyed it in both formats, but let's talk a little bit about ancient Rome, which <laughs> is your world. 
I'm glad it's not my world, really, because you're pretty horrible. <laughs> Don't forget. Uh, we'll come to that later. We'll come to that later. <laughs> Your new book shines the light on emperors who rule the Roman Empire, from Julius Caesar to Alexander Severus. And we're delighted to welcome this new installment in what has become, for me, quite addictive reading, actually. It's a sweeping account of the social and political world of the Roman emperors, cruel control freaks, diligent workaholics, extravagant teenagers. Your new book explores what the emperors of Rome were really like. And you ask big questions like what they did and why, but also how they loved, how they ate, how they lived. So it's less about going into each emperor and much more about what it was like to be a Roman emperor, what it meant to be a Roman emperor. You've got it spot on, I think. (laughs) What I wanted to do uh, was to write a book that didn't kind of feed into the whole biography of Claudius, the biography of Caligula, the biography of Nero. Um, There's some very good versions of that, uh, plenty to, to buy if you want an imperial biography. What I wanted to do was to say, look, actually, you can sometimes get a lot further in understanding the power of the emperor if you don't get fixated on the individual's right? I think people often feel quite worried about reading about the Roman Empire because they think, oh God, you know, I can't tell my Marcus Aurelius from my Antoninus Pius. I want to say, don't worry. It doesn't matter. The Romans, you know, couldn't tell their Marcus Aurelius is what they're biases <laughs> quite often. And, you know, I, and I have not the foggiest clue what the kings of England did, you know, mostly. Uh, but you can think about monarchy, you can think about autocracy and the emperors without always pinning it down to an individual. In a way, I, I do take my cue partly from one Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who, who's quite a lot of his writing we have. He looks back at his predecessors. And he says, I think, quite rightly, it's the same play, it's just a different cast. And what I'm interested in is the play, really. What's the job description of an emperor? What do they What do they do all day? Uh, you know, what do they eat? <laughs> and who's helping them do it? So I, I think that um, I'm very concerned that people don't think that a, a book about called Emperor of Rome is only about, you know, posh white men in Rome. It's, it is about posh white men in Rome, but it's also about the enslaved people who kept the palace running. And it's about all the people who took their problems to the Roman emperor. I mean, in a way, he's, you know, he, he can appear a bit like a kind of universal agony aunt. You can see through the eyes of the begging letters, the desperate petitions that come to the emperor and that sometimes are preserved. You can see what the problems of the ordinary people in the empire, you know, the woman who'd lost her cow, the guy who was being charged because uh, one of his slaves had dropped a chamber pot out of the top window and it had killed somebody in the street below. You know, was it intentional or was it not? And focusing on the Roman Empire, on the Roman emperor himself does open a window into kind of bits of the Roman Empire that we don't often see. But there's, you know, there's plenty of stuff in there that helps you, I think, look at Roman movies better. You know, there's, you know, what, what was a banquet with the emperor like? What, how did the emperor travel? Did, did the emperor ever go into battle? You know, what about all those, um, lecherous wives he's supposed to have had? Um, you know, where did he live? You know, I think a lot of people have no 
clue, because why should they, that you can go still and you can sit where Roman Emperor Nero, say, had his dinner. You can actually be there. So there's something very immediate about it. And I think often uh, we don't give the immediacy and the pleasure of really being there. We can we can tread around the palace where the emperors themselves walked. It's, you know, that's 2,000 years ago. It's amazing. I'm <laughs> also very glad that I don't have to go to one of those banquets. They sound like hell, so incredibly uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I think eating, lying down, propped up with on your elbow, with only one hand in operation and no forks, I mean, trying to reach the food. <laughs> yes, you know, and and the the Romans are amazing at their kind of ingenuity in banqueting, but you know, one of the things that I think is that the most pointless habit they had was having the dining couches around a pool of water, and the servants and the enslaved servants would have floated the food across to the diners on little boats. Now. How po- you know if, if we if we read about a modern celebrity doing that we would say how pointless indeed indulgent beyond indulgent I think it is um you you alluded to the ordinary people and I found that most fascinating actually to get a sense of some of the people around the emperor that made facilitated the emperor's life can you talk about some of your favorite ordinary folk <laughs> the ordinary folk well I think that. One of my favourite guys, and you don't often know very much about them, but you know enough to get a sort of window onto their world, is one of the imperial cooks. And he was originally slave and then freed. And his family put up a very splendid tombstone to him. And they call him something weird. They call him an Archimageros. They don't call him a cook. They call him an Archimageros. And that's kind of a really sort of flamboyantly posh title. It kind of means something like chef de cuisine, we would say. And you just get this kind of little glimpse of a guy who is proud of his status as being at the very top of the cook's hierarchy in the imperial palace. So he's one of my favourites. But another is a very grumpy man. He's a grumpy (laughs) man from Roman Egypt in the third century CE. And uh, we have his papyrus letters still surviving because of the, the, the climatic conditions in Egypt make, uh, make the survival of Roman papyri so much better there than anywhere else. This guy is in charge of, in his area, trying to get all the resources, the food, the equipment, the lodgings together for a visit of the emperor to his part of Egypt. And you see his letters to people lower down the food chain, saying, surely you've got the bakery ready by now, right? And they come back saying, well, I don't see it's our job to get the bakery ready. And then his superiors are writing to him saying, uh, how's it going? And he say, well, look, I've asked them twice already to get the bakery ready. So you see that sort of this stressed middle manager um, uh, in Roman Egypt um, who is desperately trying to get all the dice 
organized so that so that the emperor can come and have enough food and they don't know how many people he's traveling with and uh, that where are they going to put all the soldiers etc cetera, etc cetera. so you, you see in some ways uh, you know as much as things change they stay the same right <laughs> except i think that probably organizing a visit of the roman emperor is even more time consuming than organizing a visit of king charles the third right i think that's <laughs> pretty time consuming but at least you don't have to get the bakery started <laughs> yes <laughs> that's true um you, you've spoken about egypt i think that in south africa ethnic diversity is always top of mind and i was so surprised to learn that ancient rome was far more diverse than i expected and i i don't know if it's because you see these statues in white marble and you think that everyone was white um <laughs> Yes. And, but they really weren't. No. I mean, uh, you think that everyone's white. That's partly um, because of the statues, which many of them would have been painted. So probably they, they would have looked different anyway. But also there's been a bit of an investment by Northern Europeans in making the Romans like themselves very much part of the sort of legitimation of the British Empire, for example, um, was always to see itself in the model of the Roman Empire. So you get that conflation. That's the kind of conflation I was brought up with. And it's the kind of conflation that you see in kids' books now yes. often. You know, that what do the Romans look like? Well, they, they look like Brits, really, um, and white Brits at that. Um, actually, one of the things that is most striking about Rome is the ethnic diversity. And striking not just as amongst the ordinary population, but uh, emperors came from all over the place. One of the better things you can say about the Roman Empire, and there are many bad things to say about it, but one of the better things is that it actually worked by incorporating people from the provincial territories, and not just incorporating them, but incorporating them right up to the top of the hierarchy. So in the second century, early second century, you get Empress for the first time from Spain. But by the end of the second century and into the third, you uh, have uh, emperors like Septimius Severus, who comes from Libya. He probably has a, probably has an Italian origin dad and a, and a Libyan mum, but he certainly, he counts his home as Libya. And soon after you get Syrian emperors. And the uh, Rome would not have looked like the the white museum piece that we now imagine it much more ethnically diverse. And you know, that also goes uh, on the other side with slaves, because I think that um, I mean a lot of students when you're teaching them, their first instinct is to think that Roman that enslaved Romans would be black Romans, actually. If you think if Romans had thought of a slave, they would much more often have thought of a ginger-haired German, I think, <laughs> than a black African. That's not saying that the Romans were without their prejudices. They were, you know, they were as, you know, capable of hating foreigners as much as any culture has been capable of hating foreigners. But systematically, they're not doing that. And there is no, so far as we can see, it's a bit contested. There is no systematic racism in 
the Roman world. One always hesitates about this because people then get the impression that it was all terribly lovely in Rome and Rome was a nice liberal society. No, it wasn't. But it didn't have some of the characteristics that you know we now associate with exploitation, enslavement and the rest. It was kind of lacking those. Just point to that idea of us looking at history through our 21st century lens of values, you know, and, and you say, well, it wasn't a nice liberal place. Maybe it was a nice so-called place for the people who lived there. Liberal, possibly not, but possibly liberal was not um, something that one desired. It's, you know, it, one of the the big interests of history, I think, is how to balance one's own 21st century view with a Roman view. And I think that anyone, you know, you, you have to have both. I, mean, I think a good history has a, both a Roman view incorporated and a modern view. And you know, I think that people who say you shouldn't impose your own views on the past, well, impose, no. But I think one of the reasons for doing history is to think about how this looks in our terms. You know, so you take gladiators, for example. I don't think it's good enough to say, well, that's what the Romans did, so it was okay for them. I think it's okay to deplore um, that kind of bloodshed. But I do think that the other side is that uh, you can let the Romans help you think differently about your own assumptions. And I think racism is one. You know, imagine a modern empire that wasn't in some ways ethnically determined. Now, actually, Rome isn't. You know, so I think that's very important. But I think it goes down to all kinds of other things. I mean, one of the things that I think surprises people most is that the Romans didn't have prisons, right? You know, our, our notion of punishment is so bound up with incarceration. You know, we we imprison people. Now, Romans were pretty brutal, and I don't think we'd necessarily have liked what they did to their criminals, um, but it doesn't come down to removing their liberty. And that is so much of an assumption for us about how you punish someone, you lock them up. That would have been completely baffling to to a Roman audience, so would the idea of illegal migration. You know, there was migration, but it wasn't governed by law. There's no such thing as illegal migration. Again, I think it just, I think Rome allows you to see your own world from a different standpoint and possibly to see some of the things that you take for granted that you shouldn't. Question your own pre you know, your assumptions about things like prison. Um, I hadn't really thought about it. There are a myriad of alternatives to how we would so-called punish um, yes. a criminal. Yes. It doesn't uh, have to be behind bars. No, it doesn't. Um, I, mean, uh, I mean, again, they weren't sort of penal reformers in our, in our terms. You know, they had, but they, they used monetary fines, they used exile, and they used the death, the death penalty. But prisons, no. Prison was just a place, they did have a few prisons. It was a place you went before the death penalty. It was just a holding cell. Mary, would you have liked to have lived in ancient Rome? Not at all. You know, I think, look, I'm a, for a start, I'm a woman. I think nobody would like to live in ancient Rome, really. I mean, you know, I think ancient Rome was 
you know, imagine, imagine living in a world without any modern medicine at all, right? Imagine being a woman. And, you know, imagine the kind of, imagine what childbirth was like in ancient Rome. I just dread to think. Um, uh, and, you know, the idea that I, I would have no formal political rights. I'm sorry, that's, you know, I, I think we get so entranced by all these Roman empresses who had power behind the throne. Well, sorry, I want power in front of the throne, not power behind the throne. And I'm never quite sure that even people like the scheming Empress Livia, who was supposed to have manipulated her husband Augustus, I'm never quite sure that she was as scheming as Roman male writers like to think. <laughs> Serious history takes itself seriously, but it's so much more than just the bare facts. Um, and that is something that I know you love to do and really to bring to life how the Romans would have lived in a relatable way for modern audiences. So things like Roman takeout and whoopee cushions and fake food at banquets, these colourful details make lives that have been lived so long ago familiar to us. Yes, I think they do. They do. And do you think that's important? Oh, I think that new and exciting ways of helping us relate to the past, question it, sometimes deplore it, sometimes occasionally um, admire it, but seeing it in that sort of almost touchable reality, I think helps us think about ourselves. I and mean, I was just amazed when I discovered the story of this third century emperor Elagabalus, who is such a such a strange man he makes even even monsters like Caligula look as if they're pussycat really what did he do at his banquets well he humiliated people so he did as far as we can see invent the whoopee cushion which is that he had his <laughs> guests reclining somehow on inflatable cushions which the slaves used to let the air out of as the evening went on so these guys ended up on the floor Mary, it's been an absolute honour talking to you, and we look forward to your physical visit in South Africa later this year. Mary's new book, The Emperor of Rome, is now available on the shelves of exclusive books, beautifully embossed with full colour plates and printed in papers. This will be a book as decadent as any emperor could ask. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.